This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Just to give you an overview of what we'll be discussing, um, <clears throat> we're going to start with some background. Um, we'll talk about testing for COVID-19. We'll move into lower respiratory infections after that, and then talk about metagenomic sequencing as a new way to diagnose infectious disease. So in terms of COVID-19, I'd like to just step back to December of 2019 um, to think about how um, this pandemic emerged. You know, it started with a cluster of patients with severe respiratory infections of unknown cause in Wuhan, China. And what was appreciated is that these just weren't patients with, you know, the common cold, but actually they had severe lower respiratory tract infections. And this is an x-ray of um, one of the affected patients in the initial cluster. And you can see how it compares with uh, what should be seen on an x-ray. Um, the lungs should be filled with air and black, and instead uh, they were white and filled with uh, fluid and inflammatory material. When scientists looked deeper at some of the respiratory fluid, um, what they appreciated on electron microscopy is that there were particles that looked like viral particles. And what they saw on the surface of the viral particles um, were spikes. And that clued them into the fact that this might be a coronavirus. But what allowed them and coronaviruses have uh, these uh, spike proteins that decorate their surfaces. But what really clued the men uh, to understanding what this was, uh, was a technique called metagenomic sequencing. They took respiratory fluid, they extracted RNA, and they ran it on a sequencer. That's a picture of a sequencer here. And when they looked at the sequences, um, when they aligned them against databases of all known biological organisms, and they looked at viruses, they found that the majority of viral sequences were to a coronavirus. They then did a gen genetic analysis, and what they found is that this was actually a, a novel coronavirus, um, SARS coronavirus 2, as we now know it well. And they analyzed this by placing um, these uh, patients um, with this novel coronavirus on what's called a phylogenetic tree, which uh, demonstrates how closely things are related genetically. And what they saw is that it was quite different from the original SARS coronavirus. Um, up here at the top, it was different from the four common cold coronaviruses um, that circulate normally in the human populations, but that it was really most similar uh, to bat coronaviruses. And this kind of highlights um, a number of the bat coronavirus genomes. Um, the ones most similar were um, from uh, this uh, cute little guy, sort of um, a horseshoe bat. So that brings us to coronavirus diagnostic testing, which um, really has um, entered um, the news, uh, unlike, uh, unlike few other scenarios in diagnostic testing before. And in part, this was due to um, a lot of uh, challenges, issues, um, and problems with ramping up diagnostic testing in the United States. But thankfully, um, things have improved um, significantly. If we look at this plot of COVID-19 tests per 1,000 people, um, we can see that while things were pretty dismal um, up through March, uh, now you know, we are rapidly increasing, um, which is essential. So let's talk a little bit more about um, what's involved in COVID-19 diagnostic testing. But before um, we do that, I think it's important just to remind ourselves of the 
kind of central dogma of biology. Um, and um, this essentially describes a, a workflow that um, allows life to happen, whereby our genetic code and DNA, through a process called transcription, is um, converted to RNA. Um, RNA transcripts um, are then uh, read by ribosomes in a process called translation. They make polypeptides and proteins, and that allows um, our cells to function, allows our body um, to, um, to function and um, us to survive. But um, just remembering this DNA to RNA um, to polypeptide protein um, flow is, is an important thing uh, that will help us understand um, coronavirus diagnostic testing. Really, the, the central type of diagnostic testing for coronavirus um, is called reverse transcriptase PCR, and that detects viral RNA. Um, <clears throat> this is just a, a box diagram down here at the bottom of the coronavirus genome, and um, what I'm highlighting here in red are uh, the two regions, the N-gene and the E-gene, that are the most common targets of this reverse transcriptase uh, PCR reaction. Uh, the E-gene encodes the envelope glycoprotein um, and the N-gene, the nucleocapsid protein. And just to remind ourselves, um, what exactly is uh, PCR? Well, this is a process um, that allows us to amplify nucleic acid. Um, so what happens um, in, in these tests, as many of you uh, probably uh, might remember from um, your molecular biology class, is that RNA gets converted into DNA. And then through a cyclic process whereby the DNA is heated up, uh, the strands separate, primers uh, bind on those DNA um, strands that, uh, at sites that correspond to these coronavirus genes of interest. Um, extension that then happens that allows um, additional nucleotides to be added in with a polymerase. <clears throat> and then a cooling step happens and the whole thing is repeated. And so essentially, through a series of cyclic processes, we amplify the amount of genetic material in the sample um, to a point where we can detect it. And so if you have specific primers that um, bind only to certain parts of the coronavirus genome, you'll only get amplification and detection if there's coronavirus RNA in your sample. I want to make the point that um, the reverse transcriptase PCR for SARS coronavirus 2 does not cross-react with um, the other common coronaviruses, and um, it's, it's very specific um, in that sense. So let's talk more about um, the type of testing and the test performance. So specificity is, is very high. This is a measure of the um, the um, likelihood that a negative test really is negative, um, very high. So if you, um, if you get a positive result on a SARS coronavirus PCR test, that means um, SARS coronavirus is in there. Um, you, you don't have something else. Sensitivity, on the other hand, um, is a different story, and it's actually quite variable. And it varies depending on the type of specimen. Um, so you can um, take a specimen from the oropharynx with a swab <clears throat> that's in the throat. Um, you can do it in the nasopharynx as shown in this picture. Uh, this is a nice um, video, uh, instructional video, in case you ever want to try this at home uh, with the proper PPE from the New England Journal. Um, and then if we look at um, 
how well uh, these different sites uh, perform in terms of yielding a positive test in someone who truly has coronavirus, uh, we can see that you know, the sensitivity is, is not so great for oral pharyngeal swabs. Um, nasal pharyngeal, um, you know, it's still um, across the board, uh, some variability, but better than oral pharyngeal. And if we combine the two, which is what we do at UCSF, and uh, which is what is done in many places, um, we add about 5 to 10% improvement on um, our ability to detect uh, coronavirus in patients with COVID-19. I want to make the point that timing of collection um, is important and uh, significantly affects the test sensitivity. Um, so this is a um, meta-analysis of seven studies that um, looked across time from the days of symptom onset at um, the sensitivity or percent uh, positivity of a um, given RT-PCR test, either collected from the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, or um, in some studies it wasn't clear. And what I want to point out on this slide is that, by and large, um, the chance that you detect disease in someone who has it is much higher earlier during their disease course, but not too early. If it's really early, um, viral, there may not be enough virus to detect it. Um, but that over time, even though people may still um, have low amounts of virus, uh, test performance um, drops off. So understanding where someone is in their course of infection is really important in terms of thinking about the likelihood that a test is going to pick up um, their disease. We can see this reflected um, in some data from another study that um, was from a group in Hong Kong that really emphasizes um, the importance of timing. So on the y-axis, we have viral load. So that's how much virus is in the sample. Um, and then on the x-axis, we have a number of days. And you can see that people are positive for over 20 days in um, everyone in the study, um, but it declines over time. And really, um, early during the disease course, uh, people are most infectious. Um, and that's a really important point for thinking about disease transmission. Um, so early during disease course, when people are just starting to have symptoms, they're actually the most uh, infectious in terms of um, having the greatest amount of viral load. And, and that um, can significantly affect transmissibility. The other point that I want to make on this slide is that there is uh, variability based on sample type. So endotracheal aspirate is a kind of sample that comes from deep in the lungs in patients who are critically ill and on a ventilator. And we can see that in endotracheal aspirate, there's higher viral load um, than in a, a saliva sample. And so, uh, again, there is some difference based on um, the location from which the sample is collecting. So if you've been following along with the um, COVID-19 diagnostics literature, um, you may have noticed there's been a lot of press about saliva testing. You know, can we avoid uh, sticking a potentially painful swab uh, deep into someone's nose um, by simply um, getting them to spit in a cup? Well, uh, this, this one study that's still not yet peer-reviewed actually demonstrated that there was a higher viral load in saliva uh, than from nasal pharyngeal swab samples. And um, this finding, um, amongst uh, others, led the FDA to, um, um, to give emergency use authorization and approval to um, saliva-based testing. 
Now, it turns out soon after this study appeared as a preprint, um, another study came out that had the opposite finding, that actually there was less virus in saliva than nasal pharyngeal swabs. So I'd say the question is still out there, but um, <clears throat> nonetheless, um, I think there's a lot of interest in this given that it's so minimally invasive. So up until recently, um, all testing for coronavirus um, had to be done by healthcare providers. And um, a study that really changed this, um, which is still a, um, a preprint, was a study that compared patient-collected uh, mid-turbinant nasal swabs to healthcare, collect, healthcare worker-collected nasal swabs. And essentially what they found is that there was no significant difference between the two. Um, now, in this scenario, um, the patient who was collecting their nasal swab was supervised by a healthcare provider, but they could be supervised um, virtually on a Zoom call, for instance. So that was an important step um, that uh, enabled um, sample collection and coronavirus testing to happen um, by the patient themselves. This study um, kicked off um, several other studies and uh, several pieces of um, of um, authorization from the FDA that has really enabled patient-collected testing um, to get more traction. So on April 21st, the first test for patient at-home sample collection um, was um, offered approval. On May 8th, the first diagnostic test using at-home saliva um, got approved by the FDA. And then um, just last week, the first standalone at-home sample collection kit that anyone uh, could order and then send into a laboratory that um, can uh, do validated testing um, was made available. So patient-collected testing is really uh, becoming a reality. Let's talk for a minute about rapid diagnostics. Um, this is another area that's uh, been in the press quite a bit and um, really a topic that's very important as we think about what might be necessary to bring people back to work, um, to bring people back to school. We need to test them um, in large numbers, and we need to do it quickly. We can start with the gold standard, if you will, of rapid diagnostic tests, or SARS coronavirus diagnostics, reverse transcriptase PCR, which we just talked about. Um, two of the fastest uh, instruments out there are the Cepheid Expert uh, machine. There's a picture of it right here. Um, and the Diasorin also offers one. These can offer an answer in as little as 45 minutes. And basically, um, you take a swab, you put it in this little cartridge, you stick it in the machine, and then it gives you an answer. There is a different nucleic acid test, um, a nucleic acid amplification test um, that's isothermal, so it doesn't require temperature cycling, offered by Abbott called the ID Now. This has been in the news quite a bit, um, and it's been surprisingly controversial. It's quite fast, gives you an answer in 15 minutes, um, but uh, the sensitivity um, really uh, has been as low as 50%. That means every other sample may be uh, falsely negative, um, although it does have high specificity. And I'll talk more about this in a moment. And then just recently, an antigen-based assay has come out. This detects um, a viral protein. So instead of detecting the viral RNA, this uh, looks for actual, an actual part of the virus. Um, it's also quite fast, uh, gives a 15-minute um, sample to answer turnaround time, although um, sensitivity is only uh, 80% here. So let's uh, just a few other points um, about the Abbott ID Now test. The FDA uh, just recently 
put out an advisory um, regarding accuracy concerns of this Abbott ID Now test. And this um, really affected a lot of people, a lot of institutions, universities, uh, labs um, had purchased these uh, with the hope that, you know, all of a sudden they'd be able to uh, perform these rapid point of care coronavirus diagnostics. Well, this uh, FDA uh, warning was in part spurred by a study at New York University looking at 101 ED patients where they found a sensitivity of only 51.6%. So uh, that's quite concerning because, you know, that's close to um, a random chance that um, you'll get a positive test. Now, um, I should point out that a study that was funded by Abbott uh, found very different findings with a sensitivity of 94.7%, which is really um, outstanding. <clears throat> These were both compared to a gold standard of PCR. So the jury is really still out there, um, but I think a lot of people are concerned about um, this rapid diagnostic platform. Um, in fact, UCSF is um, currently not using their instruments due to concern for false negative tests. I want to briefly mention uh, testing of asymptomatic individuals um, because this has now become common practice across hospitals throughout the country, including at UCSF. And I think our, our first uh, introduction to um, the concept of people who are asymptomatic being uh, infected with coronavirus came from um, some of uh, the cruise ship uh, outbreaks, in particular the Diamond Princess outbreak. Uh, there was a study of uh, the people who were on this cruise ship. You know, almost 20% of passengers ultimately tested positive for coronavirus. And interestingly, um, nearly half of those people were actually asymptomatic at the time of testing. And this, I think, really changed the way people thought about what criteria are necessary to start testing someone for coronavirus. Really early during um, the pandemic in the United States, the only people being tested were people with really significant um, respiratory infection symptoms. And um, since we've realized that asymptomatic people uh, can actually carry this virus and be infectious. So this is an important point I wanted to mention. This brings up the um, topic again and the question of for how long is someone infectious? So many people, perhaps most people, um, still harbor detectable amounts of coronavirus for over two weeks, for over three weeks. And um, that presents a lot of challenges. Uh, for instance, if someone gets admitted to the hospital, um, trying to decide when it's safe um, for, um, for respiratory precautions um, to be removed uh, and when it's safe for them to go home and interact with other family members or other people in the community. Um, and we don't really still don't completely know what it means to to have a positive test for viral RNA. Is this just simply um, shedding a virus that's non-infectious, um, or is this an infection that is still ongoing, albeit at a lower level? So some work that has helped answer this uh, came initially from a small study in Germany um, that looked at very few patients, but essentially what they found is that uh, patients, may, patients remained um, positive by PCR testing for many days, as has now been seen in many studies, but, um, but live virus could only be cultured, so they could only obtain a positive culture um, up to day eight. And then after that time point, um, no live virus could be cultured. So even though we were detecting viral RNA, it didn't seem to um, 
represent a scenario where the virus coming from the patient was actually infectious. And more recently, there is a study in clinical infectious disease um, that came to a very similar conclusion. So the dotted line here is the crossing threshold, which basically um, indicates detection of the coronavirus by a PCR test. Um, and then the bars here represent the probability of a culture being positive from a model that they built. And essentially, what they found is that after day seven, um, there was a zero probability of someone being culture positive in their study. And so how do we interpret these findings? Why could it be that after seven or eight days, um, there's no longer um, live virus that's detectable? Well, one clue came um, when people started to look at um, antibodies in these patients. And what they realized is that um, after seven or eight days, a sizable fraction of people um, seroconverted, meaning they became um, antibody positive. And I think one working idea is that um, after uh, about a week, um, many people with normal immune systems make antibodies uh, that neutralize the virus. And even though there may be replication taking place in their body, um, really uh, the virus isn't activated to such a degree by the antibodies that uh, people are not infectious. Now, nobody really knows how well this extends um, across human populations and whether or not it applies uh, to immune-compromised people. This uh, leads us to the topic of antibody testing. Um, and as opposed to um, those tests, which we just described, which either directly detect uh, viral genetic material or directly detect parts of a virus, that's the antigen testing, Antibody testing uh, functions by looking at somebody's um, immune response. And it takes time for somebody to um, produce antibodies. This was a really nice study done um, by a group at UCSF uh, by Alex Marson and colleagues. And they looked at a variety of different commercial antibody tests and they saw variability across them. Um, and what they found, not surprisingly, is that um, up to five days, uh, most of these tests um, could not pick up an infection, uh, consistent with what we know about how antibodies work. You know, between six to 10 days, um, you know, a little over half of infections were picked up. Um, and then um, after 20 days, um, for almost every antibody test out there, all but one company picked up uh, the majority of, of infections, although you can appreciate that there was variability. And so this was an important result. Um, it, it demonstrated that not all of these antibody tests are, are created equal. Some um, are, provide um, high false negative rates, uh, well as, whereas others um, are quite accurate. Similarly, they looked at um, the likelihood, they looked at specificity of these tests, they looked at um, blood samples from patients before COVID-19 ever um, was known in the world, and um, they saw that the rates of false positivity um, were very low, uh, i.e. the test was highly specific in, in, across most of these, but again, there was variability in terms of false positive rates. Um, so how well do these antibody tests hold up in immune-compromised patients? Um, you know, this is a question that a lot of people are interested in, and um, the question that was partly answered by some nice work um, by Monica Fung and colleagues at UCSF uh, they looked at nine cases of um, patients who had received some type of transplant, um, some type of solid organ transplant, 
that required a significant degree of immunosuppression. So these were severely immune-compromised people. And what you can appreciate is that in a little over half of these cases, um, these immune-compromised people, despite their immunocompromise, could still make enough antibodies that um, one could detect this um, by the test. Now, you can see that there was quite a bit of variability, and you can see that many of these patients um, did not uh, return antibody positive. So I think it really emphasizes the fact that if we use a test based on immune response in immune-compromised patients, uh, we need to interpret it with caution. So that kind of wraps up the first um, half of the talk. I wanted to cover what's known about COVID-19 diagnostics. And then um, now for the second part, I'd like to move uh, more into talking about lower respiratory tract infections in general and uh, some of the research taking place in my labs in my lab and in um, in labs of my colleagues so covid-19 is a type of lower respiratory tract infection and uh, many people don't realize it but they're actually uh, the leading cause of death by infectious disease both in the united states um, and globally in fact if you look across all types of um, causes of death lower respiratory tract infections are actually the third leading cause of death. And this type of infection certainly has been on, um, on everyone's mind um, since COVID-19 um, entered the world. Um, but even before COVID-19, lower respiratory tract infections uh, really were responsible for such an unprecedented degree of suffering and mortality um, that um, they're just so significant. And surprisingly, uh, despite the significant impact of lower respiratory infections, uh, no pathogen can be identified in most cases. So pneumonia is perhaps the most common type of lower respiratory tract infection. And this was a large multi-center surveillance study done by the CDC a couple of years ago, looking at patients hospitalized for community-acquired pneumonia. I think they had over 2,000 patients. And despite best efforts with testing, no pathogen could be detected. So despite all of our diagnostic tests available in the hospital, we couldn't figure out what was causing the problem. Similarly, more recent work looked at the type of lower respiratory infection, the type of pneumonia that one gets in the hospital. And in 58% of cases, um, even though someone had all the signs and symptoms of a pneumonia, no answer could be obtained. And so really what this speaks to um, is a need for better diagnostic tests. I just spent 30 minutes talking about uh, advances in coronavirus diagnostics, but coronaviruses are just one type of respiratory pathogen. There are hundreds, uh, thousands of different types of respiratory pathogens that we need to be able to detect in order to diagnose and manage someone with pneumonia and lower respiratory infections. And not being able to detect the pathogen has a lot of consequences. Uh, perhaps uh, most significantly is antibiotic overtreatment. Because we recognize that we can't figure out in many cases what's causing the problem, especially at the time someone gets admitted to the hospital, our approach is to treat for the worst case scenario. We give everybody broad spectrum antibiotics. And um, it's estimated in 40 to 67% of cases, uh, these are not needed. Why is this a problem? Well, antibiotic overuse selects for drug-resistant pathogens. And antibiotic resistance prior to COVID-19 entering the scene um, was considered by many one of the greatest uh, infectious disease 
uh, threats uh, facing humanity. And I think many people still agree that is also still the case. Antibiotic overtreatment also disrupts the normal microbes uh, that live in our body that are critical for metabolizing nutrients, that are critical for preventing um, infection with opportunistic and pathogens like Clostridium difficile, which causes a terrible diarrhea um, in people in particular who receive treatment with broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, up to 20% of people can have adverse drug reactions or severe um, allergic um, outcomes uh, due to antibiotics. And antibiotic overtreatment has also been associated with increased uh, morbidity and mortality. There's also the problem of antibiotic undertreatment. So if you don't know what's causing someone's respiratory infection, essentially you're making an educated guess. And if you guess wrong, the person's infection can progress and they can transmit it to another person. So all of that said, we truly have an unmet need for better respiratory diagnostics. In fact, really the workhorse of our diagnostic arsenal is microbial culture. And this has been around uh, since um, the discovery of penicillin um, back in the 1920s and uh, still remains uh, really the, the central type of diagnostic test um, that we do. All of that said, it's, it's important to recognize that um, we need uh, diagnostic tests that don't just detect coronaviruses, that don't just detect one type of bacteria, but really diagnostic tests um, that can capture all of the hundreds, um, thousands of different types of pathogens that can cause respiratory infection. And really, the more that we learn about respiratory infections, the more that we recognize they're a dynamic process in the lung, and they're not just about a single pathogen, a single virus causing problems, but in fact, they represent a dynamic interplay between the immune system and the host response, as well as the microbiome or the normal microbes that live in the lung. And to think of all of this uh, seems impossibly complex uh, to think about how we could create a diagnostic test that could detect every possible pathogen, capture all of the microbes that normally live in the lung, and look at how our immune system is responding until we realize um, that both the patient um, and the microbes causing the infection um, all share four common things. They all share four nucleotides and a genetic code. And this genetic code can be detected with a type of technology called metagenomic sequencing. So how does this work? Well, it's fairly simple. You collect a sample. Um, so this is uh, a sample collected from a person, let's say from the respiratory fluid. And in that sample, you'll get material from the host, that is the patient. You'll also get uh, genetic material from the microbe. You take your sample and you extract RNA or DNA. You chop up um, those pieces of RNA or DNA into small fragments. You add special barcodes and some adapters. You do a PCR reaction to make millions of copies of them, um, and then um, you use a sequencer, and you can read the genetic code of all of these small fragments. You then take all of this information, billions of pieces of genetic uh, information, and you do a bioinformatics analysis. Um, and you can align against databases to figure out what is in your sample, um, and then you can also look at uh, the host transcriptome, and the host transcriptome refers to um, the, the expression of um, the genes that are in a given uh, person or, or 
if we talk about a microbial transcriptome, uh, the expression of genes in a microbe. So we're looking at the number of copies to transcripts uh, being made from genes um, in, a, in the host um, or in the microbe. So how does this all relate to uh, detecting respiratory infections? Well, um, if we just focus on the microbe for a while, um, what we recognize is that the relative abundance of genome sequences to pathogens in patients with respiratory infections are much greater um, than the, the relative abundance of sequences aligning to commensal organisms of the lung microbiome. So all of us have thousands of different microbes that normally inhabit our lungs. They're there, um, not causing any problems, protecting us um, from pathogens. And when we get an infection, such as with the bacteria Streptococcus pneumoniae, um, this bacteria overtakes um, all of the commensals in the lung microbiome, and it's present in a much higher relative abundance. And we can capture this information from metagenomic sequencing. This is reflected in what's called a diversity metric. And a diversity metric um, essentially uh, captures um, a scenario um, whereby one uh, or a few microbes are present in very high amounts and all of the other microbes um, are present in low amounts. So normally in a person um, in a state of health, such as over here on the right side of this figure, in um, patients uh, who don't have lower respiratory infections, the lung microbiome is quite diverse. That is, there's a relatively equal representation of many different types of microbial communities contributing to health. Now, in a scenario of infection, one or a few of these microbes takes over and there's a collapse in this normal diversity. And this change in diversity um, can be captured by metagenomic sequencing. In fact, we can look at um, these diversity metrics, we can look at the relative abundance of all of the different microbes and patients with or without infections, and we can use a machine learning model um, to accurately predict whether or not a given microbe detected by sequencing is a pathogen or commensal. So this is some um, data from a study that uh, we did building a logistic regression model that took reads per million or relative abundance um, by RNA sequencing of microbes, relative abundance by DNA sequencing, whether or not the microbe is an established lower respiratory tract pathogen, whether it's a respiratory virus, um, and its rank in terms of abundance. We put that into a machine learning model. We trained it in a derivation cohort. Um, and then we uh, identified a probability score. And um, we looked at that probability score, and we found that, in fact, um, it could predict with high accuracy whether um, a given micro present in the respiratory tract was a pathogen or commensal. So this provided a completely new way to diagnose lower respiratory infections that didn't require microbial culture that has uh, been, a lot, been around uh, for so many years um, <clears throat> and uh, could overcome the false negative rates of many traditional diagnostics. Um, it's all fine and good if you can identify the pathogen in uh, somebody with uh, known or suspected lower respiratory infection or pneumonia. But in many cases, um, when people are critically ill, when they come into the intensive care unit, it's very difficult to differentiate people with infection from those with severe respiratory failure due to other causes that are non-infectious.
This was a study that we did in ICU patients at UCSF, 92 adults who had acute respiratory failure. And um, within this cohort, we had patients who had um, definite lower respiratory infections adjudicated by a panel of physicians or clear alternative non-infectious explanations for their respiratory illnesses, such as a heart failure exacerbation or asthma exacerbation. And there is no difference in um, temperature, max temperature or fever between these patients, one of the key metrics that many people use to figure out whether or not someone's infected. There was no difference between white blood cell count in these patients um, with respect to whether or not they ultimately had lower respiratory infections. So these standard approaches that we use to figure out if someone is infected simply don't work in the most critically ill patients. Importantly, because we can't tell one group from another, most people, as I mentioned previously, get broad-spectrum antibiotics, because if you're not sure if they're infected, then, well, you need to treat for the worst-case scenario, and that leads to all of the problems I mentioned. So with metagenomic sequencing, we not only get sequencing information from all of the microbes uh, that are in a given sample, a respiratory sample or otherwise, we also get information from um, the human being in terms of levels of, of genes being expressed in their respiratory tract. And it turns out that we can use this information uh, to diagnose slower respiratory infections just by looking at the pattern of gene expression. These are additional data from that study. Um, we looked at patients um, with respiratory infections. Um, um, so this is a heat map showing the relative abundance of transcripts to different genes, the relative um, expression or levels of different genes in uh, the patient's respiratory tract. Patients are in columns and the different genes are in rows. And when we compared patients with respiratory infections in yellow um, to those um, with non-infectious respiratory failure, you can see that by and large, except for one person, um, they, um, they separated out by unsupervised clustering and they were, there were 879 genes that were differentially expressed between infected and uninfected people. These genes were related to um, pathways important for innate immune um, and adaptive immune response. And essentially what this told us is that there are these signals, these biomarkers that exist in, in the respiratory fluids of patients um, that can tell us whether or not someone's infected, even if uh, a clinician um, using all of the existing laboratory metrics uh, that are out there um, is unable to do so. We were able to use a similar machine learning approach, um, this time not training our machine learning model on the abundance of different microbes in the sample, but this time training our model on the expression of different genes in the sample. And we were able to identify 12 genes that could predict with reasonably good accuracy um, whether or not uh, someone was infected. And perhaps the most um, exciting aspect of this work is that when we combined our uh, microbial machine learning model and our host gene expression machine learning model. Um, we achieved uh, synergy um, and very high accuracy. Um, and this is the performance of the classifier. Perhaps they should have described what this type of curve is. It's a receiver operating characteristic curve, but a perfect test um, essentially um, has a specificity of 100% and a sensitivity of 100% and an area under the curve of one. And uh, by combining these two metrics, um, we were able to get pretty close. 
So let me wrap up by um, showing some recent work um, that um, my research group um, just um, published as a preprint. Um, it's under review currently. And what we found is that we could look at the expression of genes in people um, suspected to have COVID-19 and um, differentiate patients with COVID-19 from those with other acute respiratory illnesses. So uh, this is a heat map, again, with patients in columns. We had 238 patients in this study and genes uh, in rows. And the key point here is that there are unique clusters um, that identify, um, for the most part, whether someone has SARS coronavirus 2, that's this middle cluster, whether someone has a different type of respiratory viral infection, that's the right cluster, or whether someone has um, an acute respiratory illness that caused some clinician or the person to think they were infected with coronavirus, um, but ultimately they did not have a virus identified. So there's a unique immune response pattern that um, provides a signature for COVID-19 and SARS coronavirus infection. And what was really cool is that we were able to train a machine learning model um, and build a classifier that could predict with very high accuracy simply by looking at the pattern of levels of these different genes in a person's um, upper respiratory tract um, could predict whether or not someone had COVID-19 uh, versus another type of acute respiratory illness. And unlike PCR testing, um, what we found is that the performance of this predictive model um, did not diminish uh, even when the amount of virus in the sample uh, dropped to very low amounts. So this is a graph on the y-axis showing the probability of somebody having COVID-19 using our machine learning classifier model. And on the x-axis, this shows the relative abundance reads per million detected by sequencing of SARS coronavirus 2. And what you can appreciate is even as it gets down to zero, um, our ability to predict um, COVID-19 um, remains the same. So let's summarize um, the key points uh, that we just covered um, in the last uh, several minutes. So key point one, the gold standard for SARS coronavirus testing right now is reverse transcriptase PCR, which detects viral RNA. Key point two, sensitivity depends significantly on the type of sample. With nasal pharyngeal swab samples performing better than oral pharyngeal samples and samples from the lower respiratory tract uh, perhaps being the best. People can test positive um, for over 21 days, um, but they may no longer still be infectious. This is an area of active research. And antibody testing um, is sensitive many weeks after a patient first acquires an infection. Um, but is variable depending on the manufacturer of the test. And importantly, antibody testing um, cannot perform well when detecting acute infection with COVID-19. Key point number five, lower respiratory tract infections are the leading cause of death due to infection in the U.S. and um, the world. Point six, currently the cause of most lower respiratory infections remains unknown due to the limitations of current tests. Key point seven, metagenomic sequencing detects DNA and RNA from both human and microbes. And eight, human gene expression patterns alone can accurately diagnose lower respiratory infections and COVID-19. 
And um, with that, um, I'll wrap up and, um, and take some questions. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Wow. Um, so that was really um, pretty incredible that you can get such accurate uh, results from your machine learning metagenomic testing. So some questions that come to mind. Um, let's see. Um, can your metagen metagenomic test sample come from induced sputum or does it have to come from an endotracheal or breathing tube aspirate? Yeah, that's a good question. It can come from essentially any type of sample. Um, so I showed data from two sample types. Um, the data on the intensive care unit patients with lower respiratory infections, um, that those were endotracheal aspirate samples. And uh, the data um, uh, that described the classifier for COVID-19, uh, those were from nasal swab samples. Mm. Um, sputum can also work. We haven't um, uh, rigorously evaluated sputum, but uh, sputum contains immune cells amongst other cells that um, express genes uh, in the presence of infection. So I suspect that sputum will, will work as well. That's awesome. How often do you find a commensal organism, that's the normal flora in the lungs, which is actually in excess abundance and has and show and decreased diversity, suggesting it's actually the infection. So, do you ever find that what you assumed was a commensal organism is actually the infection? That's that's a really good question, and that's an area that we're exploring. Um, you know, we do see that scenario um, in maybe five to ten percent of cases. Um, we'll see this pattern of diversity loss of dominance, and it will be um, a type of microbe, um, let's say Streptococcus salivaris, um, which normally lives in the respiratory tract, and it's there in uniquely high abundance. And we're not entirely sure what to make of it, but um, in the setting of someone who has all the signs and symptoms of a lower respiratory infection, one has to suspect that this is some type of unique scenario where that commensal is causing an infection. And, you know, this is an area of evolving understanding. Many pathogens um, that are important causes of lower respiratory infections, namely streptococcus pneumonia, exist um, peacefully as commensals uh, in the nasopharynx of, you know, something like 70 or more percent um, of adults. And we really still don't understand what triggers the switch from commensal to pathogen. Um, in those cases. Um, so this is an area that we're interested in. And those type of unique exceptions where we see a commensal behaving like a pathogen is something we want to understand better. Hmm. Wow. How uh, quickly can you turn around your metagenomics testing for both the hosts and the microbes? Well, um, right now our kind of fastest workflow is on the order of 20 to 24 hours. Um, and that's using a, a, a Lumina sequencing platform. Um, now we have a study that is going to be coming out soon that um, focuses on detecting uh, pathogens alone and um, antibiotic resistance genes. This is a topic I didn't cover tonight. And in that study, we use a new type of sequencing platform, um, a sequencer that looks 
kind of like a flash drive, and it uh, produces data in real time. It's called an Oxford nanopore sequencer. And that can bring the turnaround time down to um, on the order of four hours. Um, there are a number of technological uh, leaps that need to happen before that can be translated into the clinic. Number one, there are some accuracy issues. Um, but we've come up with some approaches um, that I think can, can make that type of um, Oxford nanopore real-time sequencing viable. So that's an area we're exploring. So about 24 hours now, uh, but that could drop down to, you know, four hours, I think, in the near future. Hmm. Wow. And uh, we're not going to hold you to it, but um, what do you think is the, um, you know, what are the barriers to implementing this, like, practically? And what, when do you think that will happen? When do you think we, we will get widespread adoption of metagenomic testing for lower respiratory infection? All right. Well, very good question. So UCSF um, about two years ago was um, the first in the world to offer clinical metagenomic sequencing for detection of meningitis and encephalitis. Uh, that was work led by um, Michael Wilson, Joe DeRisi, Charles Chu, Steve Miller. Um, <clears throat> And cerebral spinal fluid is sterile. There should not be any microbiome in there. Um, when we deal with a respiratory tract, um, things are more, more complicated, and we need these types of, of models to separate pathogens from commensals. All of that said, <clears throat> just this month, we've begun uh, steps to move forward with clinical validation of respiratory metagenomics at UCSF. Um, we're designing the validation studies um, deciding on what sample types we're going to use. Uh, most likely it's going to be tracheal aspirate, bronchial lavage, and possibly uh, swab samples. Um, and then in the next, I'd say, 6 to 12 months, um, we're, we're aiming to, to bring that um, online. So I think in the not-so-distant future, we'll have that available as a diagnostic test at UCSF. Right now, you can order metagenomic sequencing of cerebral spinal fluid for meningitis and cephalitis diagnosis. You can order metagenomic sequencing of plasma um, for sepsis diagnosis or select other cases. And we're hoping uh, to round that out with, um, with respiratory infection diagnostics with, based on metagenomics. Fascinating. Yeah, we had the talk earlier from uh, Michael Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, really amazing. Um, how many groups around the world are doing this? How, how unique is this? Because uh, this seems somewhat shocking. A lot of our participants are like, this is amazing that you can do this. So, so is this like becoming common or is this like you know, a few centers? Well, um, very few centers that offer a clinical test. Um, but um, the number of, of laboratories using metagenomic sequencing for research purposes, including clinical research, is you know, increasing probably exponentially. Um, Joe DeRisi at UCSF was really one of the pioneers in this field, um, developed some of the earliest techniques in bioinformatics pipelines that have now become um, the, gold, the standard um, that are used across many areas. Um, but really still very few um, centers um, are able to do this uh, as a clinical diagnostic. I see. That makes sense why we're doing it here. We have basically the developer. We're one of the main developers of it. So it gave us a jump here, which is great. That's why I love being at UCSF. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, let's see, Gene asks, does this testing work in children? Um, it does work in children. Um, <clears throat> I didn't show data from, um, from our pediatric study, but we have a, a wonderful collaboration um, with a group in Colorado and, and many other sites <clears throat> studying um, critically ill children. And in fact, uh, the predictive models for whether or not um, someone is infected uh, actually seem to perform better in children. And one potential explanation may be a more robust immune response. Um, but this, this works, um, it works well in children, <clears throat> um, absolutely. There are some interesting differences uh, that we're seeing in preliminary data um, looking at um, host response to, to SARS coronavirus um, in adults versus children. <clears throat> um, we know that children, for instance, often are asymptomatic, uh, rarely get severely ill. Um, and so I think there's a lot to learn there to understand why adults much more commonly develop symptoms, sometimes severe, and yet children um, seem to control the infection or potentially not even get infected. Wow. Um, Deborah Venata uh, points out that, so the PCR test is, seems to be the gold standard. Is that what, say, the president would use for testing or are they using the rapid tests? And do you know? Well, from what I understand, there's um, the, the controversial Abbott ID Now test in, in the White House. Um, and, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps the president also has, has a PCR uh, instrument available. Um, but, um, but I know that, that the Abbott ID Now test has really been, um, been profiled as, as the test in the White House. And while perhaps, you know, really useful in certain circumstances um, in terms of being able to get an answer in 15 minutes, you know, if, if indeed these results coming from New York University that the test um, in every other case is uh, falsely negative, um, then I think that that raises some, some serious questions. So <laughs> I, I still think there's more to understand there and perhaps the test is not being used right. Um, by certain institutions or whatnot. I believe he's getting those nasal swabs, but that's a different topic. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, one thing we didn't talk about is like, what is the cost of, of running this test and, you know, scale and, and everything like that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think really the answer to that comes in terms of, um, of the scale in which it's done. Um, if you're, able to uh, do sequencing of, let's say, 380 samples at the same time, um, <clears throat> there's not that much difference in terms of um, labor time, um, in terms of reagents to do that number of samples on a liquid handling robot um, compared to 10 samples. <clears throat> so, you know, if, if we're talking about a large batch of samples, um, 384, you know, you can bring the cost down reagent-wise on the order of $25. Uh, but if you're doing a much smaller scale um, or rapid turnaround of a single sample, it can be on the order of $1,000. Um, so um, there's a lot of variability. And I think the key to making it sustainable in, in the clinic and, and economically um, effective um, will be uh, to, to have some threshold number of continual samples that allow batches to be performed. Wow. That, that's 
fascinating. And we all know that cost doesn't translate to charge. If it costs $1,000, the charge is probably 100,000. If it costs $25, the charge is probably 100,000. So anyway, <laughs> just a yeah. comment on our health system. We have to keep keep in mind the average going rate of a night in the ICU might be on the order of uh, ten to twenty thousand dollars, and yeah. if you can uh, save someone um, several days in the ICU because you can figure out what's causing the problem earlier instead of treating them empirically, then um, that's better for the patient and it saves money. Damn, love that. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate your taking the time to explain this to us. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in this work. We want you healthy and staying on the front lines and working 20 hours a day like you've been doing. Don't <laughs> get sick. Sleep when you can. Eat healthy. <laughs> Keep this up. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good night, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.